0: Of your co-hosts nathan radke and with me today are the hot pepper plants growing on my balcony this is being recorded in may of 2020 so we've gotten to that point in the quarantine or again world quar one as i insist on calling it where we're starting to consider whether we should start growing our own food Uh, so far i've established that i am only good at growing hot peppers and cacti so if it's possible to live on an all hot pepper and cacti diet I should be just fine, thank you very much. This episode, we're going to go in a different direction than the last few. We've done quite a number of episodes lately about UFOs and aliens, and about the possibility that we have been visited by beings from space, so I thought it might be a nice change-up to go from Earth to space, rather than from space to Earth. So we're going to talk a little bit about the space race. We've done a few episodes on this event already. Uh, One was the episode on the moon landing conspiracy, and the other we titled... Cold War Space Shenanigans, in which we discussed all sorts of bizarre schemes and plans, including the plan that the U.S. government was working on in the late 1950s to nuke the moon. We'll also return a few times to this topic in future episodes. I've been obsessively researching the life and death of Yuri Gagarin, who was officially the first human in space, for a year and a half now, and I'm almost ready to record an episode on him. But this episode is about a particular space race conspiracy theory that has been circulating for a while now. You might notice I said circulating rather than orbiting, because I haven't been in lockdown long enough to make a pun that terrible. But the content of the conspiracy is this. According to this claim, in the late 1950s and 60s, the Soviets had a number of space disasters that resulted in the deaths of cosmonauts that were then covered up by the Khrushchev regime. Some of these stories are a little grim. Particularly if you are currently finding yourself in a situation where you would find yourself easily empathizing with a fellow human being trapped in a confined area who is totally cut off from the rest of humanity. If that is the case, you might want to skip this episode until you are feeling a little better. On the other hand, if you really want to lean into that feeling, this is definitely the episode for you. So let's get started. The space race is something that I find endlessly fascinating as a manifestation not only of the literal heights that humans can reach through technological know-how and courage, but also of the figurative depths that nations can hit when they have gotten themselves caught up in the pointless waste of money and lives that marked so much of the global pissing contest that was the Cold War. A quick recap. During the Cold War, the two main nations pitted against each other were the United States of America and the Soviet Union. The reason that it was a cold war, rather than a hot one, is because by the 1950s, the two nations had powerful enough nuclear weapons to pretty much guarantee that both sides would be annihilated if a shooting war broke out directly between the two of them. So, instead of fighting directly, they had to find strange and unorthodox methods to compete against each other, and the space race was one of the most expansive and expensive of those methods. Now that was an extremely quick recap, because I have started so many lectures and podcasts and conversations with the description of Mutually Assured Destruction, that I think at this point I've said that description more often than I've said anything else in my entire life. I say it now instead of hello when I answer the telephone. But it's worth repeating, because there is no way to talk about the Soviet space program, which we are going to do today, without first putting it into some context. Without understanding what the stakes were. The bizarre risks and wild leaps make even less sense than the otherwise would. Basically, if you can't fire nuclear missiles at each other, the next best thing is to fire rockets into the air. For one thing, the technologies to put a human into space or a missile into the center of your enemy's capital city are fairly similar. Learning how to do the one teaches you how to do the other one. And demonstrating your ability to put a human into space and bring them back down to Earth shows the world that you could probably also put a nuclear warhead into space and bring it back down into the center of Times Square or Red Square, depending of course on which city you were trying to reduce to radioactive ash and rubble. So while the space race was cloaked in a language of exploration and innovation, and of course there were plenty of people working for both sides that were in it for exactly those reasons, The subtext behind every rocket test was a more accurately positioned mushroom cloud. From an ideological perspective as well, and we'll get much more into this when we eventually do an episode on Gagarin, the space race was an opportunity to show the world how your particular political economic system was superior by presenting the fruits of that system in the form of a powerful new rocket arcing into the sky. In the same way that winning an Olympic medal carries with it some borrowed glory for the home country, as if having a person who runs fast or jumps high says something about the worth of your nation's ideology, literally getting the high ground in the space race was something that both the Americans and the Soviets were keen on showing off to any countries that hadn't picked a side yet, or to those countries that could maybe be convinced to change their allegiance. And also just like the Olympics, there's a world of unpleasantness, hard work, sacrifice, loss, and possibly cheating that is often hidden behind that shiny gold medal. But just how much were the Soviet government of the 1950s and 60s willing to sacrifice? And how much were they willing to cover up? To give you a taste of how high the stakes were, let's go to one of the diciest moments of the Cold War, and a moment that brought us closer to global nuclear Armageddon. On May 1st, 1960, American pilot Francis Gary Powers was flying a top-secret spy plane called the U-2 over Soviet territory. Powers wasn't in the American Air Force anymore. He had been discharged in 1956. No US Air Force pilots were allowed to fly the U-2 over the Soviet Union. Only civilian pilots. A US Air Force pilot flying over the USSR was just a little too obviously a military mission. And something like that could cause a nation's leadership's itchy trigger finger to start World War III. It was a, a charade, of course. Powers wasn't really a civilian pilot. He had stepped down from the Air Force specifically to join the CIA as a spy plane pilot. Even the U in the U-2's name was a lie. It was supposed to stand for utility, as if it was a plane designed for carrying mail or dusting crops or something. And the Soviets knew that the American government was flying spy planes over their territory, but they couldn't get high enough to reach the U-2 to shoot any of them down. The U-2 flew at 80,000 feet and the Soviet MiG-15 and 19 interceptors couldn't quite get up that high. But on May 1st, as powers sailed over the USSR, there was a new high-speed Soviet interceptor in the air in that area. Captain Igor Menchukov was in a Sukhoi Su-9, and his commanders thought that maybe he had a chance to bring down the U-2. His plane wasn't armed at the time, so he was ordered to ram the spy plane in a suicide attack. Meanwhile, MiG-19s were scrambled to try to get close enough to get a shot off, and on the ground over a dozen S-75 surface-to-air missiles were launched into the air. In the midst of all that chaos, it's difficult to say exactly what happened next. We know with relative certainty that one of the MiG-19s was accidentally hit by one of the surface-to-air missiles, and its pilot Sergei Safronov was killed in the explosion. We know that Menchukov in his Su-9 got close to powers in his U-2, as did some of the remaining ground missiles. Either the jet wash from Menchukov's plane, or more like with a shockwave of an exploding missile, knocked Powers' aircraft out of the sky. And before he could set off the self-destruct mechanism, he was thrown from the plane. Powers survived the parachute landing and was captured by the Soviets, which is an entire long fascinating story in itself. But what I want to concentrate on here is why he was flying over Soviet airspace to begin with. And part of the answer to that question is, Powers had been sent to get photographs of the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, a massive scientific installation where the Soviet Space Agency had their top secret and highly guarded rocket base. The Americans had been flying over the site since at least 1957, and the Americans wanted to know what the capabilities of Soviet rockets were, and they were willing to risk war to get those photographs. The Soviets wanted to keep their missile capabilities a secret from the Americans, and were also willing to risk war to keep those photographs from being taken. But while each side wanted to hide specific technologies and techniques from the other, and particularly were anxious that any space race failures or mistakes not make it out to the public eye, they each wanted the world to see the successful attempts. That's why it was so embarrassing in October 1960, a few months after Powers U2 was shot down, when the Soviets had two high-profile but unmanned failures of their R-7 rocket. Both times, the first stage ignited during liftoff, but the secondary stage hadn't fired with enough thrust to lift the payload into orbit. These giant rockets were actually a stack of increasingly smaller rockets. The lowest and largest would fire off first, and then smaller and higher-up rockets would separate from the spent main rockets and fire their own thrusters to achieve the necessary velocity to temporarily escape Earth gravity. And the Soviet R-7 rocket was having a hard time managing this in 1960. There was another problem with the R-7 as well. As we discussed earlier, these rockets had two purposes, space exploration and nuclear annihilation. And the R-7 was a little unpredictable at the first task and totally inappropriate for the second one. The problem was, rocket fuel is hard to keep in the tank, so to speak. The R-7 used liquid oxygen to power its rockets. And liquid oxygen needs to be kept extremely cold to maintain its liquid state. As soon as it starts to warm up even a little bit, it wants to turn into gas. And as soon as it does that, the increased pressure will cause the tank and hoses to start rupturing and leaking. This means that you have to fuel up the rocket immediately before ignition. And that process takes a long time. That's not so bad for space exploration, when you know ahead of time when the liftoff is going to be but it's bad for a nuclear missile that has to be fired at a moment's notice. So the Soviet chief of missile development, a man named Marshal Mitrofan Nedelin, had a solution. His new R-16 rocket used nitric acid and hydrazine instead of liquid oxygen, and you could keep those fuels at normal temperature. So theoretically, you could keep them sitting in the tank, ready to go at any second if you needed the end of the world to happen. However, while those fuels didn't need to be supercooled, they were extremely corrosive and tended to eat through whatever you were storing in them. And it seems likely that Nedelin wasn't following all of the safety precautions that he could have been. After the failures of the two R-7 rockets in October, Khrushchev had sent Nedelin to Baikonur in person to work on the new R-16 rocket. And Nedelin had pledged that the rocket would lift off before the 43rd anniversary of the Soviet Revolution in early November. Just the fact that they would be aiming rocket launches to coincide with historical anniversaries rather than when they were sure the rocket was ready, shows both the importance of patriotic myth-making to the space race and the willingness by leadership to sacrifice safety for symbolism. But chemistry doesn't care about patriotism, and nitric acid wasn't a proud Soviet citizen. So instead of waiting patiently in the R-16's fuel tank, it started to eat through the tank and leak out. Of course, hindsight is 2020. But at this point, what Nadellen should have done is cancel the liftoff. Then, all of the fuel in the tank should have been drained out, and non-flammable nitrogen should have been pumped into the tanks to clear out any remaining explosive vapor. Then, the next day after the nitrogen had worked its way through the fuel tanks, some technicians in fireproof suits should have been sent in to cautiously, methodically, and carefully begin the process of shutting down the remaining rocket systems so it could be taken down for repair before trying again a few weeks later. All of the electronic sequencers should be reset and disarmed, so none of them accidentally go off and start an engine. But if Nadewan had done all of that, the R-16 wouldn't have gotten in the air before the anniversary of the revolution. So instead of doing any of that, Nadewan sent in dozens of ground staff to start frantically trying to tighten valves and plug leaks. The electronic sequencers were reprogrammed and postponed rather than disarmed. And in the midst of all of this frantic activity, as over a hundred technicians scrambled around trying to fix what was for all intents and purposes a 100-foot-tall-ticking time bomb, something went wrong. One of the reprogrammed electronic sequencers in the upper stage engine hadn't been reprogrammed properly, and it ignited. This lit the secondary rocket, which then burned a hole through to the main engine, which then exploded. Everyone standing near the rocket was instantly vaporized. The heat from the explosion melted the tarmac and roads around the launch pad into vicious and viscous tar which trapped people in place who might otherwise have been able to escape the blast. By the time the explosion exhausted itself, it had spread for over a mile and destroyed everything it touched. The next day, a CIA spy satellite flew over the site. Instead of the building's launch pad and rocket that the satellite had photographed only a few days earlier, there was simply a large, dark smudge of scorched earth. The Soviet government reported regretfully that there had been a plane crash, and that Marshal Mitrofan Nadewan, along with several technicians and scientists, had been killed in the crash. This was a lie, of course. Nadelin hadn't been killed in a plane crash. He had been more or less vaporized in his chair in his observation post by a wall of burning chemicals. According to Soviet rocket designer Boris Chertok, the only recognizable part of Nadelin that was left was his gold star medal, which was found afterwards on the site. Eventually, as the Soviet Union was disintegrating in 1989, the weekly magazine Ogonyok printed a story admitting the truth of what had happened almost 30 years earlier. So now that we have gone over the stakes in this race, as well as identified a tendency towards safety shortcuts and cover-ups, we can examine the specific conspiracy theory that I'm curious about this week, the Judica Cordiglia recordings of the early 1960s. Achille and jean Judica Cordiglia were Italian brothers with an interest in electronics and radio transmitting. I should also say at this point that I will be referring to the pair of them as the J.C.'s for the rest of this episode because I do not have the verbal dexterity to do the proper justice to their actual names. In the early 1960s, the J.C.'s had built an amateur spacecraft tracking station near the Italian city of Turin and they claimed that, using their homemade movable tracking dish and shortwave radio technology, They were able to pinpoint the locations of spacecraft in the sky and intercept transmissions from both ground control and the cosmonauts in space. And experts are more or less in agreement that there is some evidence that the JCs were able to track spacecraft, as some of the data that the JCs published was similar to the tracking data of American government scientists. However, the JCs claimed that they had uncovered more than a few official space flights. Instead, they argued that they had come across proof that several cosmonauts had died in secret spaceflights, and that they had even captured some of their last moments and words over the radio. Here's a list with dates of the secret doomed flights the JCs claimed the Soviet government was hushing up. In May of 1960, a spacecraft reported that it was going off course. In November of 1960, a Morse code message was reported that read, SOS to the whole world. In February 1961, a cosmonaut is heard suffocating, and his heartbeat is heard to speed up, slow down, and then stop. Now, all three of these reports occurred before the flight of Yuri Gagarin in April of 1961, who was officially the first human being in space. In May of 1961, cosmonauts called for help while going out of control, saying, Conditions growing worse. Why don't you answer? We are going slower. The world will never know about us. In November 1962, a cosmonaut accidentally is sent off into deep space, never to return. In November of 1963, a female cosmonaut burns up in the atmosphere on re-entry. And then again in April of 1964, a cosmonaut burns up during re-entry. So what we're going to do now is take a closer look at some of those recordings to see if they are an accurate reporting of secret Soviet space flight disasters. Let's start by looking at some of the technological issues with the claims made by the JCS. In February 1961, the JCs claimed that they had intercepted the following transmission. And just a quick heads up before I play it it's very creepy. At the end there, you can hear the heartbeat of the unfortunate cosmonaut. Which is super creepy, but actually a bit of a problem from a technological point of view. I'm going to get a bit technologically wonky here, but the Soviets sent their cosmonauts biometric information as numerical telemetry data, not as a sound recording. Or to put it another way, the heartbeat wasn't being picked up by a microphone as sound in the flights, it was being recorded by a sensor as information. If the JCs had intercepted that information, it wouldn't have sounded like a heartbeat. It would have just sounded like static. Now, the recording that was made that appeared from its telemetry to be heading off into deep space is also a bit of a problem. In 1962, the Soviets did not have a rocket powerful enough to escape Earth's gravity and send something off into deep space. This isn't something that could be done by accident. I mean, you could definitely crash back down to Earth by accident. But at that time, you couldn't get flung out into space through a miscalculation. It would be the equivalent of saying, Oh no, I was trying to throw the ball from third base to second base, but I accidentally threw it out of the stadium. Well, that's a baseball reference, by the way, just in case you've forgotten what baseball was during the COVID-19 pandemic. But here's another recording, and this one is even creepier. As you can hear, it appears to be the voice of a female cosmonaut. Now, I had this audio analyzed by our Russian speaking researchers, Nishana whose name I hope I didn't just mispronounce. And she said that the woman was speaking Russian with a strong accent, but that this in itself wasn't that strange, as the Soviet Union was so large at the time that it contained many republics with various languages and accents. Snishana went on to say that the woman is not providing very much information and used very simple wording. Mostly she is reading off numbers and repeating the phrases, I am hot, which would make sense if she was about to burn up in the atmosphere, and I will be back which makes much less sense if she was burning up in the atmosphere. It seems unlikely that this one is a true recording either. Not because the Soviets didn't have female cosmonauts Valentina Tereshkova went into space and returned safely in May of 1963, but because of what happens to radio transmissions during re-entry. As the atmosphere around the descending capsule heats up, it creates a layer of ionized air around the spacecraft, which blacks out any communications for several minutes. If the cosmonaut was starting to feel the capsule burn up, communications would have been impossible at that moment. There are some other technical issues as well. The main tracking antenna that the JCs were using was manually controlled. You would have to aim it by hand. And to aim it for any length of time at a tiny speck in the sky moving at a tremendous speed seems difficult enough to basically be impossible. When this recording was initially reported by the Italian newspaper Corriere della Serra, uh, they wrote that it was recorded in November of 1963, but in later retellings of this story, the recording date was moved to May of 1961, with some versions of the story stating that it was actually during the same flight as the doomed cosmonauts who broadcast the message, the world will never know about us. This in itself doesn't make much sense, as the Soviet Vostok space capsules that were used at the time were much too small to have more than one person in them at a time. There were also some political reasons why it seems unlikely that the J.C. brothers had really intercepted Soviet transmissions from doomed spaceflights. The American government was in a frantic space race with the Soviets at the time, and if they could have embarrassed the Soviets by telling the world about their failures, they absolutely would have. The American government would have been tracking Soviet spaceflights with much more powerful and sophisticated equipment, and they would have no reason to cover up any Soviet space disasters. Regardless, the claims that the brothers made were worldwide news despite denials from the Soviet government that any of the recordings were legitimate. The Washington Post ran articles about the recordings, as did Reader's Digest. And there were a number of factors that made the brothers' claims sound believable. Firstly, it was the dawn of the space age, and few people had much of an understanding how any of these technologies actually worked. Secondly, While the American government would not likely have believed the stories that the JCs were telling the world, they almost certainly appreciated the anti-Soviet press that the stories generated. Thirdly, and probably most importantly, there was an extreme blanket of secrecy that covered any aspect of the Soviet space program, to the point that even Sergei Korolev, the head of the Soviet rocket program, was a shadowy figure who was only ever referred to anonymously as the chief designer in press and radio reports. When that secrecy started to ease off in the 1970s, it actually increased suspicion in the West that there had been some secret space disasters behind the Iron Curtain, partly because of a very strange photograph of the Soviet space program that was released. At first glance, the photo looks innocent enough. Chief Engineer Korolev is pictured surrounded by cosmonauts, including Yuri Gagarin and German Titov. However, weirdly, there are two versions of this photograph. And there's one cosmonaut who's standing in the back behind Korolev who was only in one version of the picture. And because the two versions are otherwise completely identical in every way, it seems as though that cosmonaut standing at the back was airbrushed out of the second version of the picture. And there are a number of these official photographs that have cosmonauts airbrushed out of them. There are few things as ominous as to be airbrushed out of an official Soviet government photograph. During Stalin's purges of the 1930s and 40s, he would often have government officials murdered and then have any photographs of them retouched to remove the murdered official. One photograph that had been taken of Stalin, Nikolai Antipov, Sergei Kirov, and Nikolai Shvernik eventually just became a photograph of Stalin standing on his own as the other men were murdered and then erased. And this cosmonaut photo and the other cosmonaut photos had clearly also been retouched. However, these missing cosmonauts hadn't secretly died in space. They had been considered politically unreliable due to drunken brawls or some other embarrassing reasons. And they had been washed out of the Soviet space program and then washed out of the historical record of the space program. Unlike during the Stalin days, however, Khrushchev didn't also have those men wiped out of earthly existence and several of them were actually interviewed later by Western academics and journalists. Personally, I was relieved when I came to the conclusion that these recordings probably weren't accurate. There are enough real horrors in the world without having to deal with the image of a lonely cosmonaut slowly drifting off into deep space to die. But we aren't done with the Soviet space program yet. Sometime in the next year or so, we'll release an episode about the life and death of Yuri Gagarin, and we'll revisit this strange, incredible, and terrifying time in human history. In the meantime, speaking of strange, incredible, and terrifying times, I hope you all stay safe and healthy. If you like, you can send us an email at podcast at theuncoverup.com. These days, when we are all currently isolated from the other human beings, I think we all feel a little bit like lonely cosmonauts drifting off into the inky darkness.